Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 489th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is changing the world by reclaiming nutrients lost from our bodies. We're talking with Abraham Noe Hayes about fertilizer from urine. Abraham is the research director of the Rich Earth Institute. He coordinates multidisciplinary research and demonstration efforts involving farmers, scientists, planners, and volunteer participants, aka urine donors, with the goal of developing tools to allow other communities to start recycling urine. A lifelong resident of Vermont, he has used alternative sanitation systems since 1976 and has been academically and professionally involved in their development since 2000. The Rich Earth Institute is an organization operating the nation's first community-scale urine recycling program. The program converts human urine into fertilizer for use on local farms. The initiative saves water, prevents pollution, and supports sustainable agriculture by turning a universal waste product into a valuable resource. Welcome to the show today, Abe. Are you ready to rock pee? Always, yes. Let's go. Awesome. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure. Yeah, it's been a long progression, but sort of all pointing in this in this same direction. I I grew up in a home with a composting toilet. It was it was not a a great design for the climate that I was in. That our family was in. We were in, in Vermont. It was designed for California, so didn't exactly work quite right. And I I had that in the back of my mind when I got to college at College of the Atlantic and started studying studying agroecology, compost science, soil fertility. And when it came around to, to doing a project, a thesis project, that composting toilet kind of became my focus of how would we do a better one? How would you do one that, that made better fertilizer, that was nicer to use, that, that was something that people would be excited to have? And I developed something. I retrofitted my family's toilet. It worked, which was exciting. And I went into business as a uh, composting toilet designer and builder and did that for a bunch of years, motivated by the idea of recycling nutrients, but increasingly frustrated with the fact that there was no great legal way to recycle the product of a composting toilet into being fertilizer. 
then my, my co-director now of this organization, Kim Nace, approached me out of the blue and said, I've heard what you do. Would you like to collaborate on a larger thing? And we dreamed up this, this urine diversion program where we now do recycle nutrients from hundreds of people and turn it into fertilizer that we can legally use on farms. Wow. So honestly, my first thought behind that was, ooh, why would somebody want to do this? Right. Well, so many reasons. Where do I start? We always like to start with just the science of it and asking the question of what do we do now for fertilizer and what could we do better? So what we do now with fertilizer is we mostly produce it synthetically. We mine phosphorus. We synthesize nitrogen out of the atmosphere using a lot of natural gas. Make fertilizer. We use that to grow crops. The nitrogen and the potassium and the phosphorus in the fertilizer and other minerals end up in the plants, which we eat. Those nutrients are in our bodies. Then we excrete them, mostly in the urine. And then those nutrients are in our toilet bowl. We flush them down the toilet with a bunch of previously clean water. And then it becomes water pollution, which we can spend a lot of money and, and resources trying to clean up and, and eliminate that pollution. Or a lot of it, unfortunately, goes through a partial treatment process and ends up in rivers and causes algae blooms and fish kills and other environmental problems. So that's what we do now. What we could do if we could divide, separate the urine from that, from that process. So instead of the urine going into the toilet and flushing down the drain, if it went down a different drain into a storage tank and was collected to turn into fertilizer, we would actually reduce more than three quarters of the nitrogen pollution in wastewater just from taking out the urine. So that's the status quo of how we do it now. And that's where the nutrients from agriculture and from our bodies ultimately end up in the sewer. But we see the possibility of taking particularly the urine out of the wastewater stream, handling it as a resource and turning that into the nutrients there, into fertilizer that can be used beneficially on a farm instead of being pollution in a river or, or the ocean. Mm -hmm. The thing about urine is that it contains the great majority of nutrients that are, are normally found in wastewater, but a very small part of the volume. Urine is less than 1% of the volume of wastewater we produce, but it has about 75% of all the nitrogen that gets flushed down the drain and somewhere around half of the phosphorus. Wow. So just by taking urine out of the wastewater stream, we can eliminate the majority of those two nutrient pollution problems and at the same time make a resource that helps support sustainable agriculture. So when we look at it through that lens, just the resource management lens, it really makes all the sense in the world. And then if you're talking about getting people to be excited about adopting it, we talk about the, the giggle factor or the ick factor, depending on who you're talking to, they have right. sometimes those two reactions. And one great way to get beyond that is just to take a look at, at what are these resources we're talking about? Where are they going now? And you look at where they're going now and you say, well, that's, that's really not a great place. It's causing a lot of trouble there. Yeah. And we just need to find an easy, clean, socially desirable way that people can have their toilet do a new function. So uh, we're not talking about necessarily getting people to radically change their habits. We're talking about changing our infrastructure and the way we, we handle wastewater so that we can just divide that very valuable but very problematic fraction, the urine out, and then do something good with it. Well, and you, you said some interesting things about nitrogen and phosphorus, and right now we're just flushing them away. We have an issue on the planet where we're reaching what they're calling peak phosphorus, don't we? Yeah, that, that's a matter of, of discussion and debate, I guess. I don't know if there's definitive evidence on, on either side that, mm -hmm. that it will or won't be a massive problem, but it certainly could be. And I think that the thing, even aside from peak phosphorus, is where is phosphorus from? 
and it's largely from Morocco or from land territory bordering Morocco. That's where most of the phosphorus in the world is located. And having any crucially vital resource located in one place in in the world seems like (laughs) geopolitically a a, uh, major major problem. Yeah, a big problem. Wow. All right. So where do we go next with this? You're you're collecting in your community, you're collecting urine or pee from donors. What happens next? So in, in our program, people have a urine diverting toilet built into their house or they have a portable urinal that we provide. And the next step then is to collect all that urine into one into one place where we can process it. And we, we do that with a truck. We drive around in this big yellow truck and we pump urine out of I had to giggle with houses. that. I had to giggle with that, a big <laughs> yellow truck. I know. It was so fortunate. We didn't plan it, but the truck we found was bright yellow. So we go around, we, we pump out everyone's storage tanks, or we also go to a depot where some people bring their portable tanks. And that, that's this sort of uh, extreme recycling that people are engaging in, where they actually bring these portable tanks that are part of the portable units that we provide them to a pump station, pump that out to a large tank, and then they collect from there. So there's the two the two options, depending on how, how built in it is to someone's house. And then we bring it all back to our research center, and then we pasteurize it here, which is a step that we take because it's a community-scale project. Home urine users typically don't do any sort of treatment on their pure urine they've collected, but we pasteurize this. We have a state permit for that. And then we provide it to farmers to use as fertilizer, mostly on hay fields. And then that, that completes the cycle because then, then those nutrients are back into the agricultural cycle, whether they come in animal feed and then some of that, that feed may be, may be to dairy cows, it may be to other sorts of livestock, but it's back in the agricultural cycle rather than being in our rivers and streams and bays. So one big question I had as I was kind of preparing for our conversation today, and I know this is a huge issue in water treatment, and that's pharmaceuticals. How do you address that? Yes, right. So that's another, another reason to collect urine is that about half of the pharmaceuticals that we, that we ingest and pass through our system end up in the urine. The other half's in the feces, roughly speaking. It depends on the pharmaceutical. But what that means is that, that about half of the pharmaceuticals that are ending up in wastewater through human waste are in the urine. If we can get that out, then we've removed half of the, that pharmaceutical source in wastewater. And pharmaceuticals are very hard to remove from wastewater at a sewer plant. So if we can take them out, it protects the fish or the amphibians or other creatures that are living in the, in the fresh water that sewer plants discharge into protects them from being affected by these pharmaceuticals. Then at that point, we have them in the urine in a very small volume. So we can, we can do um, selective treatment to that urine to remove them. We have done some experimentation with the University of Michigan and the University at Buffalo looking at using activated charcoal filtration to remove pharmaceuticals from urine. We've also done some studies looking at, at what happens if you just use that urine as an agricultural amendment, as fertilizer, what happens in the soil, what happens in the groundwater under that plot, what happens in the crop. And one encouraging thing we found is that even though we detect all the pharmaceuticals we look for, we detect them in urine when it's from a large group because, because it's mixed and we're, we're getting a little bit of everything from everybody. Right. So they're in the urine. But then when we analyze the plant tissue or the soil or the water, uh, for instance, with the, uh, the lettuce that we grew, one of the pharmaceuticals that came back the, the highest was caffeine, which is no surprise, also acetaminophen. And in order to get one cup of coffee worth of caffeine or one tablet worth of acetaminophen, which is Tylenol, you would have to eat an entire pound of lettuce from the study plot every day for over a thousand years. And that would give you... 
that would give you the same amount of caffeine as a single cup of coffee. Oh, interesting. interesting. So it's a very small number. It's not our place to say whether that's too much or too little, but, right. but it is very small, which is encouraging. And then we're also developing ways to remove the pharmaceuticals even further if people decide that's necessary. Now, I'm a big, big, big proponent of healthy soil and a big component of healthy soil is all everything that's alive. Are you finding that there's some processes going on that the bacteria, the microorganisms are processing this out? We're not able to say why why the pharmaceuticals are disappearing. My assumption is that a lot of it is biodegradation. Some of it may be um, maybe transformation into other products. That's an important thing to to consider as well, but we have been looking for some of those other products as well. But yeah, a lot of those pharmaceuticals do biodegrade, but they're not able to do it in a wastewater plant quickly enough because the water is only there for about 24 hours. Right. But in agricultural soil, you apply urine as fertilizer and then weeks or, or, or longer pass before you will be harvesting any crop. And that whole time is a chance for, for soil microbes in this very, hopefully very active soil to be biodegrading all the compounds that you add to it, including pharmaceuticals. So how are the farmers reacting when you approach them and say, hey, I got some fertilizer for you, man. It's made from pea. <laughs> yeah, well, we get, we get different reactions. Uh, a lot of it depends on what, uh, what people's fertilizer needs are and what crops they're growing and what kind of markets they're growing for. So we, we focus on hay farmers because hay farmers typically use fertilizer if they're growing, growing a lot of hay and don't have enough manure to fertilize all of it. So a lot of hay farmers use synthetic fertilizer. Also, the, the crop they're growing is for a customer who is not going to have any, any ick factor. It's for a cow or for a horse or a All sheep right. or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that's, a, that's a nice way to introduce it. The biggest thing that we've, we've had as, as an issue of using urine supplying it to farmers is that farmers usually want more urine than we've been able to supply because we're starting up this, this program. It takes a lot of urine to fertilize a hay field, and we are growing, but farmers use a lot of fertilizer. So I wish we could provide more than two of them right now, but it's very encouraging to us that the demand is much higher than, than the supply right now. So we can, we can keep collecting more and more, which is great because it prevents pollution. And we know we have, we have more farmers wanting to use this than we have fertilizer to supply. So uh, we're good to, good to grow for quite a while in that sense. Nice. So you're, you're receiving a good, positive uh, response out there from people that are farming. Definitely, yeah. And there are farmers who want to know more about it before they use it or, or who, have, who have customers who they're concerned what would the customer's reaction be if they were using urine as fertilizer. I don't think there's any, any practical reason that a, a customer should, should be deterred by it, but it's all about you know, the image and what people think their customers will like or not like. So it, it makes a lot of sense to start, start with the farmers where that's really not an issue. And then as the urine becomes more known and, and recognized as a fertilizer source, maybe that, that sort of conceptions will change. Yeah. Now, is this a for-profit organization or a research institute? We're, we're primarily research-oriented. We do offer some services. We do operate a portable toilet service system. So people rent portable toilets from us. We provide them at parties, weddings, festivals. And then we bring the product back and recycle nutrients from those products into our fertilizer. But the Institute itself is is a not-for-profit, independent research organization. And we are affiliated with some universities, but we are truly independent. We, uh, we get most of our support from research grants, from private donations, from people who want to support our work. 
and then from some consulting as well. Well, you, you know, you got me over here going, ooh, giggling and smiling all at the same time. <laughs> oh, that's one of the best things about this topic. People, people really, they're, they're drawn to talking about it. Whether they think it's a good idea or a bad idea from the start, like people cannot help talk about this when the topic comes up. Well, yeah, it's one of those bodily functions that people laugh at, you know, like farts. Everybody laughs about f- right. farts, right? So, of course, mm-hmm. you know, people are going to get giggly about it. How fun. So, yeah, how much urine is there to be collected from urban areas? I mean, I would think that, like Phoenix, we got 4.4 million people. Yeah, well, it's over 100 gallons of urine per person per year. You said 4 million people, that would be 400 million gallons of urine, potentially. Wow. Which, uh, <laughs> it's a large volume. And that, that really begs the question of how are you going to store it? How are you going to transport all that volume? And that is one of our major research topics right now. Is, is how to concentrate those nutrients into a smaller volume. And we've been working with a few different technologies, reverse osmosis, which people use for making fresh water out of seawater. You can also make concentrated urine out of, out of pure urine. And then the byproduct is a, a mostly clean water that could be recycled or, or used for another purpose. That was an amazing mm-hmm. question. Because usually the way reverse osmosis systems work is that we put water in it and what comes out of the system, what we drink is that's the good stuff. And right. usually with RO systems, you lose about 50% of the water because it's flushing the bad stuff away. Did I just hear right, you right. say that you use RO systems because you want the bad stuff? Well, not really <laughs> no, bad stuff, stuff, but it, um, yes, it's yeah. good stuff. Exactly. Yeah. The RO system has two sides. There's the concentrate and there the, is the the more concentrated salts or impurities or or fertilizer, and there's the permeate, which is what has permeated through the membrane and is very pure by comparison. So if you're making drinking water, you save that permeate for drinking and you discard the concentrate, which is a salty brine right. if, you're, if you're working from seawater. And in our case, we put in pure urine and the permeate is much lower concentration, mostly pure water, and the concentrate is almost all of those nutrients that are in the urine, but only 20% of the water. We actually can extract 80% of the water and save only, only one-fifth of the volume is what we're left over with as a concentrate. So it's five times as concentrated as before. And then using freeze concentration where you, you take a solution, and in our case, urine or concentrated urine, you partially freeze that. You end up with pure ice crystals growing through the volume, which then also has an even higher concentrated solution that has stayed unfrozen. So if you remove the ice, you're left with, at that point, a, a 10 times concentrated um, urine solution. Wow, I'm just fascinated by the technology and what you've done with this. You guys have been doing this almost a decade, right? Yeah, we, we started out with the idea in 2011 and started collecting urine in 2012. So so it's been not quite a decade, but we're coming up on it. Wow. And where do you see it going? Well, hopefully everywhere. It's an idea that is really transferable to pretty much everywhere. It, it solves different problems in different places because there's really three things that, that urine diversion does. It can, um, it can save fresh water because with a urine-diverting toilet or urinal, in certain configurations, you don't need flush water or you don't need much flush water to, to clean those. So if you think roughly four out of five flushes every day are for urine, those flushes could be greatly reduced or eliminated through, uh, through urine diversion. Then there's also the pollution prevention. We're not flushing those nutrients down the drain where they become uh, nutrient pollution. We're saving those out. And then there's making fertilizer. So depending on where you are, you might have a water shortage. Where you are, you've, you've got not a whole lot of water to go around. Right. Uh, other places have very sensitive 
water bodies like coastal bays or ponds or rivers or lakes. So you can protect those. Or in some places, particularly in other countries where there's really not a great fertilizer supply system, people could do a lot a lot better in terms of supporting their soil fertility and crop yield if they if they had the ability to recycle the nutrients from urine into fertilizer to grow their crops for themselves to eat or for sale. Wow. So before we started recording, I, I mentioned to you that I had reviewed your document, Guide to Starting a Community-Scale Urine Diversion Program. This is a 52-page right. book on this process. Tell me about the process of putting it together and then the document, which is going to, I think it's going to be available on our show notes page, right? Yeah, we hope that will be there. That process was a long time in the making because ever since we'd started doing this urine diversion project, our goal was to do geographical transfer, to, to figure out how to do it here and then tell people so they could do it in other places because our goal is really for this to happen everywhere that it makes sense, which I think is pretty everywhere. much everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Most places, yeah. They do it on the space shuttle or space station, I guess, now, and everywhere on Earth, too, uh, would, be, would be great. So this document came out of the desire to, to help people know how we do this. And so we, we started cataloging all the things that we had done that, that had worked and that hadn't worked. And that was a big part of it, too, is that the, the goal of this project was to find all the problems that come up when you're doing urine diversion on a community scale and then figure out how to solve them or figure out how to just avoid those problems. So we've scaled up from a very small scale. Now we're, we're still pretty small, but we collect over 7,000 gallons a year. Our target this year is actually to, uh, to double that. And so... So we compiled drawings and descriptions and, and testimonials from farmers about all the different things we've done, from the collection to the transport to the treatment to the application phases, and then also speculated on, on how you could do this in, in other situations and tried to make something that would really help jumpstart someone's program uh, if they wanted to do this somewhere else because we spent a lot of time and research money and, and funding figuring out how is the best way to pump urine so that the pump doesn't, doesn't get clogged up and that it goes quickly, or what's a great way that someone can have a, a fixture in their home that's inexpensive that will be able to stay clean, smell good, and be easy to use. And so we tried to publish all that stuff in this document, and it made it available to download for free so that people can have access to that and hopefully start up their own programs and tell us about it so that we can, uh, we can, we can know what else is going on and, and reference it through our own materials. Wow. Where do you see this going? Let's let's just imagine for a moment in 30 years, this is a mainstream thing and cities are collecting urine. What does it look like? It would look very different from how we're doing it now, because right now we have a very motivated group of people who are excited about the project and willing to really be extreme recyclers in, in their approach to this. And so we have fixtures in, in their bathrooms that are are functional and work well, but they're not something you would see in a showroom. And, and so I think for this to really go mainstream, one of the main things we need is urine diverting porcelain toilets, a toilet that looks pretty much like a regular toilet and you can use it like a regular toilet, but it has a separate drain for the urine that can go to a separate pipe that goes to a storage tank where a truck can come periodically, maybe maybe once or twice a year, and pump that urine out of your tank, much as we in New England receive, receive heating oil from a truck that comes and pumps it into a tank. That's the mm. reverse of that, that kind of service. Right. And then brings it to a processing station, makes fertilizer, takes it to farms. So the homeowner or the person using a business that has one of these toilets would just have a toilet they used and go about their business. Fortunately, these toilets do exist in Europe, 
designs now here, we've imported some of them, but there aren't any that are that are built to the American plumbing conventions and standards and the like the right dimensions and, and offsets and all that. So so you have to do a lot of plumbing adaptation to make these European ones work. But for it to really take off, I think that, that we need to have those toilets available and then have wastewater authorities funding this kind of development because currently wastewater is very expensive to treat largely to remove nutrients. Right. So a lot of uh, a lot of smaller cities and, and towns are faced with major investments in removing nutrients from wastewater and it's hard to come up with the money to do that. But we believe that that through funding urine diversion it's a way to separate at the source this problem. It's kind of like how we deal with solid waste as we do recycling. We say, how about you don't throw that aluminum can in the trash in the first place? Divert it into recycling. We diverted the urine. That's a way that the wastewater authorities could be getting great value out of their investment, and we'd also be improving wastewater treatment and generating fertilizer at the same time. Wow. So what I just heard you say was that this could be an expense for a municipality to reduce expenses in wastewater management. Right. Yeah. And there are already places where, where the finances, the, the economics of it clearly favor urine diversion. And there was a great study done in, in Cape Cod by Allison Wood. And she looked at the cost of different different systems, conventional systems, and also systems including urine diversion, and determined that in that in that scenario where there was a lot of infrastructure spending that would be required to deal with nutrients through centralized treatment, that actually the urine diversion was a, a more cost-effective solution. Wow. So that, from a research perspective, that could be huge going over the course of the next 100 years for community development. And if you can provide a less expensive way to manage wastewater treatment. Absolutely. Wastewater treatment is a huge expense. And our wastewater infrastructure is very old. Uh, there was a lot of investment done around the time of the Clean Water Act. But yep. since then, it's tapered off. And we're way behind on on maintenance. And it may be time, instead of just rebuilding the systems that we built in the 70s, maybe it's time to uh, to do something that uses the, the flows in, in a more beneficial way. Nice. So some of us might be going out in our backyards and you know, <laughs> peeing in our backyards. This is part of the process, right? It sure is. A lot of us are doing that, it turns out. We hear so many stories of people who meet us at, a, at an event at a festival, they'd say, oh, well, you know, I do this, and here's how I do it, and here's the amazing tomatoes I grow, or this is the amazing thing it did to my lawn. I, I knew someone, I had, a, I had a friend who built a new house, and it was, it was a new lawn. It looked terrible because it you know, had not very good soil. I went over one day and I said, boy, your, your lawn's looking really good over there, but not a, what's going on? He said, well, <laughs> after dark, I go and I do a little home improvement. And, and it was amazing. <laughs> it was striking, striking results. And gardens, the same. A lot of people do it in their vegetable gardens. The, uh, the World Health Organization actually published some guidelines a few years back suggesting how people, how people handle urine at the home scale, at the community scale, what sort of treatment is or isn't required. And, and they came out in favor of direct reuse of urine in home gardens with the main caveat being wait a month after you fertilize before you harvest crops that will be eaten raw. Perfect. Because um, while urine typically is not a source of pathogens, um, if you have a urinary tract infection, there can be uh, bacteria in there. There are a couple other things that, that could be in there potentially, but by waiting a month after, after fertilizer application, that, that manages that risk. So yeah, it's, a, it's something that is condoned on an international level by, by the UN. Wow. Well, and generally with fertilizers, 
uh, especially if you're using, you know, chicken fertilizers or cow fertilizers, you want to wait a month anyways. Yeah, very true. That's a good point because when people think about urine, they often go right to the, what could be the worst thing that could go wrong? And it's good to also think about that in the context of, well, what else are we doing? Oh, we're using animal manure. Oh, we're, you know, we're using all these other, other products in daily life. And in that context, yeah, it is, it is quite benign and it's good to just use that, that precaution of, of the one month. Boy, it does amazing things for a garden, mostly in terms of nitrogen. There's also phosphorus and potassium and all the trace nutrients because everything you eat, those nutrients end up in your urine. But nitrogen is in the highest supply. And it probably would be good to point out, people often ask us, how do you, how do you apply urine as fertilizer and how much do you apply? And a good rule of thumb for that is... Now, well, hold on here. Are we talking about the yeah, concentrated sure. stuff that you guys are making? Or are we mm. talking about, you know, me walking out in the backyard and, and yeah. leaving a dose behind? Right, yeah. We're talking about direct application here. We're talking just about pure urine, no, no alterations or concentrations. So pure urine supplies all those nutrients, but nitrogen in the most supply. And we often tell people, well, here's the NPK ratio and, and all these things, but... But I, I realized, to cut to the chase, really, it's, it's needed when plants are low in nitrogen. So often they'll, they'll look a little yellow. They won't be growing very fast then. Maybe it's been very rainy. The nitrogen has washed out of the soil. But when plants need nitrogen, a side dressing rate that's common is around 40 pounds per acre. Um, I've seen that on extension service literature. And if you want to apply nitrogen at that rate to a plot that's a 10 foot by 10 foot plot, 100 square feet, uh-huh. you would need about two gallons of urine to apply your nitrogen at 40 pounds per acre. Oh, wow. And your garden might need more or less than that. And a soil test is really the best way to know what your soil needs. Yeah. But in order to translate, if your soil test said apply nitrogen at a rate of 40 pounds per acre, that would be about two gallons in a 10 foot by 10 foot area. Wow. All right. Well, there you go. There it is. It is, and it doesn't hurt to um, add water as you apply it. If the soil is, is quite moist, you can you often get away with applying it undiluted, but and especially in a garden application, it makes a lot of sense to mix it with water before you apply it, a few parts of water to one part of urine, or to apply it and then water it in right away. And watering it in also is great for taking care of the odor because, yeah, there is odor if the urine has been, um, has been stored for any period of time. Yeah, exactly. Wow. You bet. I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it. Failure is a great, it's a great area to learn from. And I think it, for me, it depends on, on what you mean by failure. In my research, I do things all the time that, that don't work, and we'll, we'll build something that we think will accomplish something with, with urine processing or create a system, a physical system that we think is going to have certain a certain strength or a certain durability, and it won't. And I don't really think of that as failure. I think of that as that's just how research works, is that, that if, if things went right the first time, then you already knew the answer, and you're not, not <laughs> right? really learning much. Yeah. So that I don't think of that as failure. That, that, that is just, just doing research. But the kind of failure that, that I actually do, do worry about and, and am fearful about are the failure that damages property or that is like a, a social gaffe where, right, it's, oh, I, I really did the wrong thing. I really messed that up. I wish I could take it back. Projecting competence, if I, if I were to say, oh, yeah, we can, we can do that, and then it turns out we clear we can't. Now, those are the kind of failures that I really am averse to on a, on a personal level. Spending money on something, a bunch of money, I think it's going to set us up to do something great, and then, oops, 
that was a waste. Those are the ones where I feel like just it's a horrible feeling. And that's a relationship I feel like it can be helpful because it makes me careful, but it can also be a liability, especially things like the like the the social aspect where um, I actually have a little bit of, of face blindness as far as I can tell. I have such a hard time recognizing people I've seen once or twice. Oh, yes. And it can lead to super awkward situations <laughs> where someone comes up and is like, oh, hey, what's going on? Tell me about this. And I'm just trying to figure out who they are and, yep. and make that connection. And the thing I learned from that, because it, it, it's just so disheartening to, I'm sure, come across as like, hmm, he wasn't really that happy to see me. He didn't ask me anything about myself. I try to just say, I'm sorry. Can you tell me who you are? I have this problem. And it does help a lot. I think that's one thing I have learned. Admitting those areas that I'm not competent mm. goes so far to avoiding the the embarrassment and just the um, things just don't turn out very well when when you're trying to trying to work around that stuff and better to better just to be confront honest. it right on. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you consider your biggest success? Well, I, I think that, that this work that I'm doing with the Rich Earth Institute, it's really worked out in a way that, that feels super successful to me because when I was when I was in college and in high school even, I knew I wanted to do something that was environmentally beneficial. And that was a goal. I thought about, well, what's the most important things to go into? Is it environmental law? Is it, is it researching solar panel technology? And, and eventually I went with, well, no one's doing anything in this area. In composting toilets, people were doing things. In urine diversion, no one was doing anything at this scale in this, in this area, really in, the, in this country as far as I know. And, and so I latched onto that and I said, well, I have some skills that are relevant to this and I want to go for it. My co-director, Kim Nace, showed up at this moment when I was questioning what the next move was. And I'm just, I'm just so proud to have been part of the formation of this organization that, that takes something that a lot of researchers had recognized this is an important area to, to move forward in. Uh-huh. And we took that and we ran with it. And we built an organization that engages people all throughout our community on a very personal level as participants. And then it's scientific and it works with the farm community. And it's a fun place that I come to work every day. And, and I, I think and hope it's a fun place for everyone else who works here to, to be. And that, I, I couldn't feel more successful professionally than that. Like our, our work may or may not go on to have grand impact, but I'm, I'm just so proud with, with, with what we created just in, in that, that process. Yeah. Beautiful. And what drives you? Mm. It's a combination of, of intense curiosity with how things work or could work, and then a desire to make, make things better in some way. And I could have taken that in terms of like making, making a really high-performing product of some kind, but I've always been motivated about the environment. I've always been motivated about sustainability and trying to, trying to help push the world in a direction of health and, and um, surviving, thriving, ideally. I, I know I, I, can't, I can't change the direction of the world, but I, I try to push it in that direction. And this work I'm in now is one of the only ways I've found to really really combine that very sort of engineery problem solving like tinkering how how can these little gizmos work with how can we solve a, a big problem this is and this is a big problem yeah yeah it is well and I, I i have to i have to say that i do think that we can change the world with this work and we do it by showing up every day and doing this work 
Yeah, I think that's all that's all we can do. Anything more than that is an unrealistic goal for any one person. And anything less than that is sort of demotivating. <laughs> exactly. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Yeah, there's, there's this book called Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air. It's by David McKay, who has since passed since he wrote it. I think it's from the um, around 2011. But it's this amazing book at at sustainable energy and all the different kinds of sustainable energy and all the different kinds of energy use. And I love it because it looks at it through an energy balance perspective, which which the engineer part of of um, my way of thinking loves that because it's not just saying, you know, here are a million different ways we could make energy. It's saying let's look at all the energy we use. How can we? What is realistic to save? And all the ways we could make energy. How much could we make from all those? And it's actually radically different how much you can make from biomass versus solar versus wind. I don't want to say which one is which because you got to read the book to find out. But if you if you've ever if you've ever looked at those issues of, of of sustainable energy and just had that question of well which ones really add up, this is the book that answered those questions for me. It's a little out of date now, but but the the basic aspect of it all is is all super sound. And if you're like me, it's a wonderful ride. He takes you on this great ride through just dissecting. Cars. Why do they? Why do they take energy for a car? Let's look at the wheel friction. Let's look at the the air friction. Let's look at all these aspects. How have they been changed? How can we not change them because they're just inherent? And what's just to do with style or just to do with convention? And it just deconstructs all these energy consuming things and all the energy producing things and then reassembles them in a way where you're like, oh, well, here's how it could work. And those other things. Wow. They're part of the equation, but we shouldn't we shouldn't put all our faith in those baskets. Yeah. What was the name of the book again? It's called Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air. Awesome. And it's available for free on his website as a PDF. Wow. It's also available on paper for a price. Perfect. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? That's a hard one because how does anyone know what's good for anyone else? But for me, the advice that that I I have sort of assembled for myself that I try to follow is is to do to do the things that I actually love and to not spend a long time working towards something in a, in a situation I dislike in the hope that someday it'll lead me to something I do like. And, I, and in my case, that was pursuing dry sanitation. There wasn't much money in that for a long time for me. Uh, I, I actually have a job in that now, but for a long time it was, it was pursuing that because it fed me in terms of intellectually and in terms of feeling like this is a good thing to do. And then eventually it led me to this career that I didn't know existed when I started. And I realized that's, in a way, that's a, a privileged opportunity because I was able to go to college and I was able to leave college without massive debt. And so I was able to do things that didn't make a lot of money. But I've even seen people who who didn't have that imperative just go down the path of, well, I should do this because it's a, it's it's stable or it's secure or or it's it's a good job. And lose track of the things that that really they really enjoy and that feed them. Yeah. So that's the advice I try to follow myself. Excellent, excellent. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Abe. It has been uh, lightning. <laughs> oh man, well, that was a bad uh, 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 occupational hazard here. <laughs> thank, <laughs> thank you very much. This is this has been great conversation. You Thanks. bet. How can our listeners find out more and get a hold of you? Yeah. Well, you can go to our website which is richearthinstitute.org. You can also find us on Facebook 
or on Twitter. And you can also email us at info at richearthinstitute.org if you have a question that goes to me directly and, and several other folks. And you can you can start P-cycling whatever, whatever way is available to you, wherever you live. And if you're interested in trying to start some sort of a community-scale project, please reach out to us because we are here to help. Awesome. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash P-cycling. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.